Our text this morning that we come to is 1 Samuel 23. If you have your Bibles with you, I would ask you to turn there and give your attention to the holy, perfect Word of God. For the Word of the Lord is completely inerrant. The Word of the Lord is completely authoritative. And the Word of the Lord is completely sufficient. 1 Samuel 23. Now they told David, Behold, the Philistines are fighting against Keilah and are robbing the threshing floors. Therefore David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go and attack these Philistines? And the Lord said to David, Go and attack the Philistines and save Keilah. But David's men said to him, Behold, We are afraid here in Judah. How much more then if we go to Keilah against the armies of the Philistines? Then David inquired of the Lord again. And the Lord answered him, Arise, go down to Keilah, for I will give the Philistines into your hand. And David and his men went to Keilah and fought with the Philistines and brought away their livestock and struck them with a great blow. So David saved the inhabitants of Keilah. When Abiathar, the son of Ahimelech, had fled to David to Keilah, he had come down with an ephod in his hand. Now it was told Saul that David had come to Keilah. And Saul said, God has given him into my hand, for he has shut himself in by entering a town that has gates and bars. And Saul summoned all the people to war, to go down to Keilah, to besiege David and his men. David knew that Saul was plotting harm against him, and he said to Abiathar the priest, Bring the ephod here. Then David said, O Lord, the God of Israel, your servant has surely heard that Saul seeks to come to Keilah to destroy the city on my account. Will the men of Keilah surrender me into his hand? Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? O Lord, the God of Israel. Please tell your servant. And the Lord said, He will come down. Then David said, Will the men of Keilah surrender me and my men into the hand of Saul? And the Lord said, They will surrender you. Then David and his men, who were about six (coughs) hundred, arose and departed from Keilah. And they went wherever they could go. When Saul was told that David had escaped Keilah, he gave up the expedition. And David remained in the strongholds in the wilderness, in the hill country of the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul sought him every day, but God did not give him into his hand. David saw that Saul had come out to seek his life. David was in the wilderness of Ziph at Horesh. And Jonathan, Saul's son, rose and went to David at Horesh and strengthened his hand in God. And he said to him, Do not fear, for the hand of Saul my father shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Saul my father also knows this. And the two of them made a covenant before the Lord. David remained at Horesh, and Jonathan went home. Then the Ziphites went up to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is not David hiding among us in the strongholds at Horesh, on the hill of Hakaliah? which is south of Jeshimon. Now come down, O king, according to all your heart's desire to come down, 
and our part shall be to surrender him into the king's hand. And Saul said, May you be blessed by the Lord, for you have had compassion on me. Go, make yet more sure. Know and see the place where his foot is, and who has seen him there, for it is told me that he is very cunning. See therefore and take note of all the lurking places where he hides, and come back to me with sure information. Then I will go with you, and if he is in the land, I will search him out among all the thousands of Judah. And they arose and went to Ziph ahead of Saul. Now David and his men were in the wilderness of Maon, in the Arabah to the south of Jeshimon. And Saul and his men went to seek him. And David was told, so he went down to the rock and lived in the wilderness of Maon. And when Saul heard that, he pursued David in the wilderness of Maon. Saul went on one side of the mountain, and David and his men on the other side of the mountain. And David was hurrying to get away from Saul. As Saul and his men were closing in on David and his men to capture them, a messenger came to Saul, saying, Hurry and come, for the Philistines have made a raid against the land. So Saul returned from pursuing after David and went against the Philistines. Therefore that place was called the Rock of Escape. And David went up from there and lived in the strongholds of Engedi. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Let's pray together. O Lord our God, we ask that you would open up your word to us, that in it we might see the Lord Jesus Christ, our great deliverer, our only hope, and that we would see that you call us to be faithful, faithful to your promise, faithful to what you have done, to depend upon your grace and to seek after you in all that we do. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen. What do we do when the world is pressing in? When life is hardest... That is actually when we are most likely to doubt God. Why is that? It's because when the world around us is so big, we fail to see God. And right now, for David, the world around him is gigantic. It threatens to block out David's view of his Lord and Savior. And so this morning, as we look at 1 Samuel 23, I would like us to see the God who delivers, not just the God who delivers David, but the God who delivers all his people, the God who delivers you, if you profess by faith to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this morning, we'll see three ways that God delivers. First, he delivers by guidance. He guides his people by his word. Second, he delivers by encouragement, for often we are in need of encouragement in a dark place in our lives. And then third, he delivers by providence. In that mysterious way in which the Lord our God makes sure that all of his plans and purposes come to pass. (coughs) 
Deliverance by guidance. Deliverance by encouragement. And deliverance by providence. Let's begin then by looking at David who makes a point of living his life by God's word. God guides him by his word because David follows God's word. Now David has been living in a very bad place right now. He's been on the run for some time. We don't know exactly, but it is at least months, perhaps years, that David has been on the run from Saul. And it's not just that David is in exile. No, he's constantly having to change places as he's chased by Saul. First he's in Nob, then he's in Gath, then he's in Adullam, then he's in Moab, then he's in Harith. He's constantly under the pressure and danger of an attack by Saul. And now David gets news about an attack on the town of Keilah. Now this is supremely ironic. They tell David in verse 1 that the Philistines are fighting against Keilah. Now many commentators think, and I tend to agree with them, that the events that are happening at the very beginning of chapter 23 are simultaneous in time with the events at the end of chapter 22. Now what does that mean? That means that while an Israelite city is under attack from their enemies, the Philistines, Saul is too busy slaughtering another Israelite city to do his job as king. And so the word comes to David, whom we might call the true king. The word comes to David that this city is under attack. So what should David do? Now, this is a difficult decision, isn't it? Does David have enough forces? Can he afford to come out of hiding? Is it it even his responsibility to protect this city? He doesn't have an official Israelite army. The interesting thing for us to see is that David doesn't jump straight to a decision. We need to see something else first. And that is in verse 2, we see the very first thing that David does is he goes to the Lord. Now that's a lesson for you and for me. Because far too often, we embark on a course without going to the Lord. We plan, we get advice, we advise others, we do research, but we don't begin with the simple and critical act of going to God. That's what David shows us here. That no matter how hard the decision is, no matter how difficult all of the intricacies, all of the pitfalls, the place to always begin is with God. So David goes to the Lord and asks, should I go down and rescue Keilah? And the Lord tells him, yes, go and save Keilah. And he tells this to his men. And and you can imagine his men are a bit more skeptical. They look at him and they say, David, you don't have enough danger here in the wilderness? We're afraid for our lives. Why on earth would we go out in the open and take on the Philistines when Saul's trying to destroy us? That doesn't make any sense at all. I want you to notice again what David does. He doesn't say to his men, who's the leader of this group? Follow me. He doesn't use sheer authority. That would be something that Saul might do. 
He doesn't try to tell them, well, you see, I've worked up a perfect plan and everything will be fine. I guarantee it. No. What he does is he brings his men into the same process that he has been in. He goes to the Lord again in front of his men so that they can see that God has declared that this is the right course. And so they can hear the promise of God to them that God says, I have given the Philistines into your hand. I don't know about you, but even the most skeptical follower of David there is ready and raring to go. He's gone from sort of a harebrained scheme of David to an official promise of God. You see, when we're guided by God's word, we instantly have a peace, a comfort. We know things will be all right, no matter what the outcome is. God would still be God if David's troops had been defeated. But God's word gives us a promise. And here, he's got a very specific promise. Now, I want you to notice what David doesn't attempt to do. He doesn't attempt to rationalize this word from God. Well, you know, God didn't exactly say when I had to go to Keilah. How's next month look for you? Or two or three months from now? He doesn't try to find a loophole. I sometimes wonder that if this word had come to the contemporary American Christian, the first thing he would try to do is to find an attorney. To find a loophole to get him out of this command. There's got to be a way to get out of this, right? But David does neither of these things. He acts immediately on God's word. And it's important That his life was such that his men expected him to obey and act on God's word. And because of that, they obeyed and acted as well. They're living by God's word. And so God grants success and the Philistines are defeated with a mighty blow. But that's not really the take home from this. It's that David was living his life in accordance with God's word. But there is a problem, because just as David feared, Saul found out what was going on. And we see here again the depravity of Saul in verse 7. It was told to Saul that David had come to Keilah, and Saul said, God has given him into my hand. Now, if you didn't understand the complete depravity of Saul's soul, you see it here. He actually thinks, after butchering God's priests... That God is helping him by giving his anointed into his hand so he can murder him. That's how out of touch with reality Saul is. He actually thinks God is honoring him by giving him David. So what will David do now? Perhaps David should draw up a military plan. Perhaps he should start political negotiations with the people of Keilah. What will he do? No, David will do the same thing that he has done his whole life. And that is, he will trust in God's word. He will go to God again in verse 10. Now there is a great irony here because David has an advantage over Saul. (coughs) And it's not an advantage of circumstances. It's an advantage that is a part of their nature. You see, we read that the last priest 
Abiathar comes to David. Now, why does he come to David? Because his whole family was slaughtered by Saul. Saul has spent his whole life pushing away God's word from himself. He doesn't want to listen to the prophets. He doesn't want the priests. He kills them. He doesn't want to listen to David. He starts surrounding himself with unbelievers, murderers like Doeg the Edomite. At the same time, David draws to himself those who love the living God. And so Abiathar comes to David, and there's this little detail that Abiathar brings with him the ephod. Now, what you need to understand here is the ephod, worn by the high priest, was a type of garment, but it had included with it a device, as it were, called the Urim and the Thummim. Don't ask me how the Urim and the Thummim work. We don't know from Scripture. The only thing we know is that the Urim and the Thummim were used to go to the Lord to get an answer to questions. Very typically, yes or no answers. And so what Saul has done is drive to David the one man with the one thing that could go to God and get the answers about what is going on. But you see, that's natural, isn't it? Because that's according to Saul's nature, to drive God away. And it's according to David's nature, to want to seek the Lord. And so David then goes to the Lord again. Now he may be cornered. He may be outnumbered and on the run. But David still trusts in God's word. And that is enough for him. It's a lesson for us that we should never, ever doubt the provision of God's word, even in the darkest of times. God's word is a resource for us. We hear this in the New Testament in Hebrews chapter 4. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace. When? To help in time of need. You see, when you have need, God's word is there for you. We are not just to live by God's word, but we are to trust God's word also. So David flees from Keilah after being told that they will indeed give him up. And then we see a second way in which God delivers David. God kept his word to David. It wasn't easy. Our text tells us in verse 14 that Saul was after him every single day. Can you imagine that? And yet every day God protected him from falling into the hands of Saul. God's hand was upon him and so he was spared. And then we come to this remarkable episode with Jonathan. It's it's almost like a dream. Because David is out in the wilderness and no one knows where he is. That's the way he wants it. He's just fled from Keilah. And who happens just to find him? Jonathan. Now I guarantee it was not gossip around the palace where David was. Because otherwise Saul and his army would be there. So we don't know how Jonathan found 
it's interesting that that's not important for us. We don't know all of the risks that Jonathan took to get to David. It was obviously a risky proposition to leave his father's court to hope that he was not being followed and to get to David. But what we do know is that this is an important episode at a critical time in David's life. David is surely discouraged here. He has no home to go to. He has no place to go. It's extremely hard to live. Even just feeding people in the wilderness is a monumental task. David had obeyed the Lord. He had delivered a city only to see them being willing to betray him. There seems no end to the hatred of Saul. And on top of all of this, David is the leader. You see... If one of the men in his troop was discouraged, David could encourage him. David could tell him about the promises of God. David could point out how God is merciful and kind. But who comes alongside the leader? David has no peer here. He has no one to bear his heart to. He doesn't dare show his depression. He doesn't dare show his fear because that would ripple through the ranks and would be disastrous. So David's all alone here. And God knows that. And so he sends him Jonathan. And Jonathan is like a breath of fresh air into this story, isn't he? He is loyal and he loves David. Have you ever had that experience when an old friend comes to visit you and encourages you? It helps you to put everything in perspective, doesn't it? It actually gives you hope. It reminds you of the things that you need to remember. And the reason Jonathan can be so encouraging to David is because of his own nature. Jonathan is not a rival. David can relax with him. Because Jonathan possesses a very rare gift. Rare in his day. Rarer still today, I think. Jonathan is glad to be second. We don't know many people today in America that are glad to be second, do we? That's not what life is all about in our society. It's I've got to be number one. If I'm an athlete, I've got to be paid one dollar more than everybody else. I've got to be number one. If I'm in business, I've got to succeed. And everybody else has got to fail. I've got to work my way up the corporate ladder. And if I have to step on some people to get there, so be it. If I need to cheat to get better grades, to get on top of other people in school, so be it. I've got to be number one. How different is the view of a godly man in the scripture? So much of our world today is focused on being number one, even at the expense of others. And what that means is, think about what suffers in that. Marriages are devastated. How many people do you know of, mostly publicly, whose marriages have been destroyed because they needed to be number one in their career? How many families have been ripped apart How many friendships lost by the desire to be first? 
How much integrity is lost to get to the head of the class? But you see, Jonathan shows us here that there is honor in being second. He is no less the man for it. As a matter of fact, he is more. Brothers and sisters, we should get used to this way of thinking. Because you are not number one. And you never will be. There is only one number one. And his name is Jesus Christ. We need to learn this from no less a giant of the faith than John the Baptist who said, I must decrease. He must increase. The sooner we learn to put Jesus first in our lives, the sooner we learn to say, I am second, the sooner we will find our purpose and our joy. So what does Jonathan bring to David that is of such value to encourage him? Well, he does bring his presence, which is helpful. He also brings a strong reminder of the promises of God. Now think about how critical the promises of God are at this time. Could David bear up under the assaults of Saul? Could he handle the potential betrayal from Keilah? Would the betrayal at Ziph devastate him? We don't know. But we don't have to. Because God sends Jonathan. And Jonathan reminds David of the promises and how sure they are in verse 17. He says, you shall be king over Israel. You know it. I know it. Even my father Saul knows it. That's how sure the promise of God is. And to underline this, to emphasize this, Jonathan and David renew their covenant before the Lord. What promises do you need reminding of today? Are you lonely? Then cling to the promise, I will never leave you, nor forsake you. Are you feeling like you'll never get ahead or be a success? Then cling to the promise, in my father's house there are many mansions. I have prepared a place for you. Do you feel the weight of sin separating you from God? Then cling to the promise that says, No one is able to snatch him out of my hand. The promises of God are for you today for your encouragement. Finally, we see the Lord deliver David through providence. In the midst of the hardness of life that David is dealing with. Now David has God's word. He has encouragement from the Lord in Jonathan. And he needs it because he's still on the run. They're going wherever they could go, the text tells us. There seems no end in sight. But at least it seems that he might be safe for a short period of time amongst his countrymen in Judah. But fresh on the heels of the encouragement of Jonathan comes this betrayal. Some men from Ziph, a town south of Hebron, make a plan. They see an advantage for themselves in betraying David. And so unlike Keilah, which feared that they might become another knob against the wrath of Saul, these men from Ziph are trying to take advantage. This is cynical opportunism. They want to betray David 
for some small reward. And Saul's response is so typical of Saul, isn't it? He starts out with platitudes. Oh, the Lord bless you for bringing this information to me. And for you among only the people having compassion on me. Oh, poor Saul. Throw him a pity party. Now, there's something very interesting here in this. When Saul says, you have compassion on me, that verb is only used one other time in this book. Do you know when? It's used to describe Saul sparing the Agagites against the explicit instruction of God. So even the language here is pointing out to us that Saul is completely in the wrong and has no idea how far he has fallen into sin. And then he begins to worry about how accurate their information is. You might want to run through this one more time and make sure that everything is accurate. And then finally, he begins to brag. Oh, I can find him amongst all the thousands if you just give me an opportunity. This is so typical Saul. This is a hard life that David has. But then we begin to see the mysterious work of God in the background. We see David fleeing. He goes in flight. We see Saul pursuing and he's getting ever closer. Will this finally be it? Will the promises of God fail? We see David flees. Saul pursues. David goes. Saul pursues. Till finally they get to the point where they're on opposite sides of a hill. This is the part of the story where you close your eyes. Or where you watch it like this through fingers. We don't want to see what happens next. Saul's so close. What could possibly stop Saul at this point? David and his men are all that we have and they're on the run. What could possibly come up next? Let me ask you. Have you ever felt in this spot? Unable to get away. Unsure of how to go on. Maybe you're in this spot right now. Maybe you're afraid to tell others how discouraged you are. Or how you feel trapped by sin. Or how you don't know how to mend relationships that are broken. It seems hopeless to you. But wait. What's that shouting? It's it's a messenger. And he comes. And he says, Saul, we've got to leave now. The Philistines are attacking. The marvelous wisdom of God. He uses the enemy to be the savior. We would never have dreamt up, let's save David by the Philistines. We would think if you throw the Philistines in the mix, that just makes things worse. But not God and his ways. His ways will not be stopped. His plans will always come to pass because he is God. Do you see how God can turn everything around in his own mysterious way? Saul and his men were closing in on David. But at the last minute, this messenger comes and the Philistines are the saviors. There is no stopping the plans and promises of God. And this is what God does. He takes the enemy, and uses it as a savior. Think about our Lord Jesus Christ. 
How does God solve the problem of sin and death? Through death. Through the death of Jesus Christ. Through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. This is what God does. His ways are beyond our ways. He always delivers. The Lord our God is a God who delivers. He delivers us daily by his word. He gives us encouragement to face the challenges of life. And he delivers through his perfect providence. Which is always in control. Trust the Lord your God. He is a God who delights to deliver in the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this story of deliverance that is to us a reminder of how we are to seek you always. How you are wise beyond all our ways. And how you guide us by your word. You give us encouragement in the Lord. And your kind providence is always to the blessing of your people. Please help us to take this to heart this day. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.